When we pray, thy kingdom come, do we know how wonderful the king is? Every day we're supposed to pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come. When we pray, thy kingdom come, do we know how wonderful the king is? That's the question for this morning. Now we're going to be considering Isaiah, so if you'd be kind enough to turn to it, you're going to need your text, and I'm hoping we can get it up on the screen. We're continuing in our series called His Story, and we've been making our way slowly and stumblingly through the Old Testament, hitting some of the big points, and we now find ourselves about 20 to 30 years after last week, which was somewhere in the area of 780 to 740 B.C., and we're now in the time of 740 B.C. and onward in the time of the prophet Isaiah, who is a massively significant prophet, a major prophet, as Jonathan has already alluded to. He prophesies for some 50-plus years. I think of my hero, uh, Charles Simeon, who was the rector of Holy Trinity Anglican Church in Cambridge, England, for 54 years. To be anywhere and to do any work of any substance for more than five decades is, is a huge achievement and a major undertaking, and he had a massive impact. And I want to look at this passage, and I want to look at him, and I want to look at it under three questions. First, where does it happen in history? Second, where does it start? And third, where does it climax? You all with me? So where where are we going to anchor this in history? Where does it start, and where does it climax? All right, so first of all, where does it start in history? I want to spend a few moments just anchoring this very specifically so that we're all together. So if you remember from previous time, we had the kingdom of Israel under kingship, which is roughly 1,000 B.C., and we just have one nation, Israel. And then uh, in 922, we get the separation of the north and the south under Solomon because he wasn't faithful. So we have the northern kingdom, Israel, capital city, Samaria, and we have the southern kingdom, Judah, capital city, Jerusalem. So we have Israel and Judah, which were formerly both part of the same nation, and now they're two different nations. So we have a split set of kingdoms. And we need to remember as we begin this morning that even to this day, this is true, Israel is a crossroads internationally for the world, and especially for that region of the world. So if you want to get from one place to the other, you have to go through that region a lot of the times to get to where you want to go. The the ancient Roman Empire had something called the Appian Way, which went right through the heart of what you and I would call ancient Palestine today, what you might call Israel or the Holy Land. And the reason that's significant is because you can't understand this passage unless you understand borders and vulnerability, which is frankly something Americans don't get. We simply don't get it. We don't spend any time worrying about being invaded by Canada. We don't think about the possibility of a threat from Mexico. We just don't think that way. It's why Pearl Harbor was such a big deal, because it was the first time really since back in the Revolutionary War period when our our borders were so threatened by an alien empire. And we responded very strongly because we felt so shocked and so surprised. And the thing that you need to understand about Israel back then, and it's still true of Israel to this day, is they didn't live like that. They had two borders on the north and the south, and they had border on, on the other side over here on, the, on what you and I would call the east, and on the west they had the, the water. And they had the Assyrians, they had the Egyptians, they had the Syrians, they had the Babylonians, and then they had the northern and southern kingdom, which didn't always get along. So at any point... 
just taking that little period of history, you're constantly worried about who you're in alignment with and you're under threat militarily as well as spiritually all the time from your neighbors. You're always thinking about it. So it's the antithesis of the way you and I live. We're in the heart of Europe, you know, in Switzerland or something, and we're constantly thinking about all these places where you're going next and you cross over a national border. And these national borders are not neutral and not somewhat hostile. In many cases, they're very hostile. So it's a time of borders and vulnerability. And then we have to add to it the historical specificity of what's going on. And when you start in 740, you go through a critical period in Israel's history. And the following happens. The northern kingdom, we just mentioned, capital city Samaria, gets attacked and falls to the Assyrians in 722 BC. It's entirely wiped off the face of the earth. They lose everything, not just their capital city. They literally lose everything. And if we had time this morning, I'd take you through how the Assyrians chose to manage a national crisis, which was really incredibly devious and incredibly clever. They mixed people. They took people from all over their massive kingdom and mixed them all together. So Jews not only lost their northern kingdom and their land and their temple and their language and all that stuff, but they lost any sense of national identity because they got mixed in with all these other groups. But then that army under Sennacherib that wiped out the north came all the way down to the southern kingdom, wiped out most of the southern kingdom, and came to the capital city of Jerusalem and surrounded it. It was a massive crisis. The capital city was about to fall. So the whole country of Israel, north and south, was about to be wiped out. And one extra biblical reference says, and I quote, Sennacherib had Jerusalem surrounded like a bird in a cave. Vulnerable. And it's in that great moment that the prayer of Hezekiah and Isaiah rescues the southern kingdom. And that's actually in the prophet a little bit later. It's a great scene and it's a great passage about the answer to prayer. So Isaiah is prophesying during this period when the north falls in 722 and on the way to the south falling, which is in 587. And during the period when Sennacherib comes down and wipes all of Israel out except for the capital city of Jerusalem and nearly takes Jerusalem itself. You need all that by way of background, all right? So that's where it begins. Not easy, very vulnerable, very threatened, in danger of hostile invasion. You all with me, all right? Second, where does the passage start? Look at your text. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought them into contempt in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And this is a reference to a passage in 2 Kings when a previous king of the Assyrians, Tiglath-Pileser, came down and took three pieces of the northern kingdom, which I didn't even mention. And those pieces are already gone as it begins. But as the passage begins, it begins in this vulnerable time with these hostile powers, and the theme is darkness. Look at your text. It's doubly emphasized, and I want you to catch this. It's not simply the people who walked in darkness. Do you see that? It's that they dwell in a land of deep darkness. You can translate that passage, deep darkness, shadow of death. It's a very powerful image in Hebrew. I was trying to think of a way this week to convey this image to you. I only have lived through one tornado in my life. I don't recommend it. It's a horrible experience. Uh, We had almost no warning. But one of the things I remember, which I will never forget, is it went from pretty light to entirely dark, like a giant shadow was passing over us with no warning and no time. It was terrifying. That's what this is like. 
So what the, what the prophet is doing is it's, he's looking at this marauding Egyptian army coming down. He's looking at the proximity of the north falling. He's looking to the proximity of the south soon falling. And he's going beyond just the fact that they're under God's judgment, which I'll get to in a moment. And he's going to the fact that actually both the north and the south will ultimately be wiped out and all that will be left is a remnant which is deep, deep darkness, loss of national worship, loss of national identity, loss of national everything, including, and very important for them, national land, which was inextricably intertwined with who they were. Now, while I go flying by all this stuff, just that we, so we're all together, starting in deep darkness, Isaiah clearly sees this as God's judgment on an unfaithful nation. This is one of the themes in the prophets. And I want to say a word to all of us as Americans for just a moment. You do need to pause here and let the Bible instruct us into how a Christian is supposed to see the world. You do actually know that America is not at the center of the world, right? That's not actually the way Americans think. We are in the most ethnocentric nation in the world. My father grew up in New York City. One of my favorite posters is a New Yorker's view of the world. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's hysterical. It's got this giant New York City that kind of, it seems like it goes nearly to Kentucky. It's sort of this big black blob. And then there's kind of Kansas and a few tumbleweeds. And then there's California. That's the country. And then, then there's an ocean and the rest of the world. That's a New Yorker's view of the world. Because this is the way that we think, right? If you watch an American news program, all the stories are about America. And if there's any story that's not about America, it's about France or Germany or some other country in relation to how it impacts America. If you stay in France, as I did one summer, you can actually go an entire evening news program and not hear any stories about America. Who knew? It's shocking. We actually don't know that they speak English in heaven. This is not how the world works. And one of the things about history is nations rise, but nations also fall. Right? I'm talking about Think about this. I'm talking about the Assyrians. Nobody talks about the Assyrians today. Why not? Well, they once were super powerful. They're gone. Why are they gone? Because that's the way history works. Nations rise and nations fall. You study European history and you start in the 16th century and you look at who's really powerful and it's Spain and you get to the 17th century and you look at really who's really powerful. The 17th century, sorry. 17th century Spain, 18th century France, 19th century England, right? And we could spend some time on this. There's some people in England who still don't know that they're not in the 19th century, but that's another story for another time. But, but <laughs> no, no, no comment on my, my, dear, my dear brother here, but, but on some other English people, perhaps. But, but the point is, nations rise and nations fall, right? England was massively the most significant country in history. And the 20th century is the American century, right? Which, which means what? It means this. How do you know what happens to this country and to what happens to history going forward. If the Assyrians were wiped off the face of the earth and nobody talks about them, does it follow that America has necessarily a future? And if so, what kind? Don't presume, brothers and sisters, we stand under the mercy and the judgment of God, which includes nations being judged by God and nations which are faithless to God come under his judgment in such a way that sometimes they're wiped out. We cannot presume God is interested in God's plan in history, not America's place in history. Are we all together? Mm-hmm. All right, so we started in history with this vulnerability. Then we started contextually in this time of deep darkness. And now I want to go to the climax, the third thing, which is this figure of the coming king. And I'm at a great disadvantage this morning because it's a Christmas passage, A. It's in Handel's Messiah, B. And you all already know it, C. 
So my problem is you're over-familiar with the text, right? Handel's Messiah, wonderful counselor, right? Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You could probably all sing it. But what, what I want to do for a few moments is I want to pause and let the, the actual words on the page, this is the advantage of a series like this, I want to slow down the film and let them hit us with the full force that Isaiah intends them to hit us with. So let me begin here before I actually get to the four phrases. Let me just note for you the magnificence of Isaiah as a figure and as a prophet and as a theologian. Because it is Isaiah's genius to combine them in this way. Everywhere in the world, as we sit this morning, those phrases are being used in worship. But, and they have been used that way throughout history. But nowhere are they combined as a foursome until there. Which means, in the words of one commentator, Isaiah is the great evangelist of the Old Testament. It's as if he had a front row seat for the ministry of Jesus and he knew exactly what to say. And we're in the 8th century B.C. And he's saying stunning stuff. It's a symphony in four movements. You've got to take not simply each individual phrase, but you've got to take them all together. So it's like a diamond. And it doesn't matter which way the light refracts. It's got so many carrots and it's so magnificent. Every angle gives you another way to decide it's beautiful. You all with me? All right, now look at the passage and look at the phrases and let's just consider them. First of all, wonderful counselor. I need to make a quick observation here um, because it's related to the Bible translation and Handel's Messiah, which is if you know Handel's Messiah really well and you know the King James, it goes wonderful, long, long pause, counselor. You may have noticed our translation does not do that, right? There's no comma. That's because there's no comma in the Hebrew. So that was one of the places where the King James didn't get it right. And the way I want you to think of that phrase is it's, it's both and. It's one phrase, wonderful counselor. And here's the idea. It combines wonder and wisdom. So he himself is a wonder. That's point one. And he himself is the wisest of counselors who needs no counsel but can provide any counsel. I refer you to the fascinating passage in Judges 13. If you're taking notes, you can take it down. When Manoah and his wife are told by a visiting angel that they're going to give birth, and they actually give birth to Samson later in the story, and the wife is the one who encounters the angel initially, and she goes home and tells her husband, and he says, I want to meet this person. And so they try to arrange a meeting, and he comes back. And uh, they have a conversation, and he's very hospitable because it's the ancient Near East. He said, would you please have a meal with us? And the angel says, very reluctantly, kind of, okay. And they have this conversation during the meal with this angel of the Lord figure who's talking to Manoah and his wife before Samson's birth. And this is what it says. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord during the meal, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. It's incredibly important to understand the significance of that question in Israeli culture. In Israel, to ask somebody's name is to ask their character. Basically, who are you? That's the question. And here comes the answer. Why do you ask my name seeing that it is wonderful? This word wonder is so important. We've lost 
so much of a sense of wonder in the modern world. One quick illustration just to give you a glimpse of what we're talking about. I, uh, there's a fabulous story about a boy who grew up in very rural Africa that I came across, and he'd read all of his life about lions. Lions this and lions that. I mean, such a magnificent animal, you know, king of the jungle, and he'd seen pictures and he'd heard all about it. And then when he was a young man, he went on safari when he was in his 20s. He actually met a real lion. He'd been reading about him, he'd been seeing him, but he actually met a real lion. He was stunned, he was stupefied. There's a phrase for it, uh, mysterium et tremendum et fascinans. It is a mystery which at the same time massively draws you toward it, and yet at the same time it's so tremendous you stand in awe of it. That's wonder. It doesn't happen very often. It happens in something like the Grand Canyon or the Northern Lights or something like that. That's what this person has as the center of their character, that awesomeness. And he's a counselor. He does not need to surround himself with counselors, but without receiving any counsel of all, he counsels those, even those who are without counsel, and is thus the end of all want of counsel, says one commentator. Second, just getting started. He's the mighty God, a very clear designation for this messianic figure, and there's no escaping the text. You can't make it say mighty God-like or mighty God-ish. It's mighty God. This is Emmanuel, God with us. This is the incarnation hiding in the pages of the Old Testament. And this is a reference to God as warrior, and it is a reference to the power of God. And we've emphasized this before in this series, but can I just say to you again, when you encounter God for who he really is in the Old Testament, he's a God of a lot of things, but he's at least a God of great power. Nobody went through the Exodus and came out and said, gee, I wonder how significant God's power is. They just experienced it in a way that they would never forget again. You don't get an exodus. You don't go through the water. You don't see the Egyptians drowning. You don't end up in, in, the, in the wilderness without a massively powerful action in history. And that's the way Israel began. And it reverberates throughout their memory. The God of power who rescues his people. The God of power who created the universe. The God of power who was up there and came down to lift us up to him. That's the way they think. And this is the phrase, mighty God, that's used of this figure. So not simply a wonderful counselor and a counselor full of wisdom who causes us to wonder, but a mighty warrior, powerful God. You all with me? Still ganging up on you. Number three, everlasting father. The eternal father designates him not simply as the possessor of eternity, as significant as that is, right? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the New Testament says. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. T.S. Eliot says he is the still point of this turning universe, right? He's that eternal. He always is, he always was, he always will be. But he combines that with father. One commentator says... So he's the eternal, tender, faithful, and wise trainer, guardian, and provider for his people now and for all eternity. What an image. Not simply a gracious, good human father, not simply a gracious, good national father, but a gracious, good eternal father. That's the God to whom we pray. That's the God who comes into history in the person of Jesus Christ. And then just to really gang up on you and put all four together, He's the Prince of Peace, which is that word shalom, which means not simply 
absence of conflict, brothers and sisters. And remember where I put you in history. When it says Prince of Peace, and you've got Assyrians and Egyptians and Babylonians and all these other ites running around at any point threatening your, your well-being and your future and your spiritual health, to have a Prince of Peace means a ton. But this word shalom is much deeper and richer than that in Hebrew. It's, it's life. It's the fullness of life. It's the fullness of health. It is a human being fully alive. It's the best way to think about Jesus. Jesus is, Paul says in Corinthians, our peace. He is our shalom. If you really want to know what God's plan for a human being is, look at Jesus because Jesus is a human being fully alive. And when it says prince of peace, it means he is not simply the one who stops conflict, but the one who provides all peace, all security, all health, all embodiment of the goodness of God and what it looks like and what it feels like to live it and to be it. Micah 5 verse 4 reads this way, And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be our peace. So you all with me so far? What have I said? I said it's historically grounded. I gave you that. I said it's contextually grounded in darkness and even deep darkness. And then I've said it climaxes with this great figure of this messianic person who has all four of these characteristics. Now I've got some questions and I'm done. I go from preaching to meddling, sorry. And there's so many ways you can take this passage. First of all, I want to say something about transformation. This is a passage about transformation. This is a passage that goes about as low as you can go and ends about as high as you can get. And it says everything about the character of our God. If you think about Jesus and what he does with people, what he does is he changes them. People don't encounter him and stay the same. They're never the same again. I think of the woman at the well who's out there in the middle of the day. She's the Hester Prynne of the New Testament, right? She's been through five husbands, and the guy she's with now is not her husband. The reason she's out in the middle of the day is because nobody wants to do, have anything to do with her, and the, everybody goes to get the water in the middle of the day. No, that nobody goes to get the water in the middle of the day. They go in the beginning of the day where everybody talks, and that's where all the women of the village are. She's not there. Nobody wants to talk to her. She's an outcast. Jesus comes. They have a conversation. She goes and evangelizes an entire village and says, and I quote, go, come and meet a man who t- told me all that I ever did. Boom. She went from an adulteress and an outcast to a massively significant evangelist who was entranced beyond words. That's pretty transformational last time I checked. Here's a question for you. You probably haven't asked it, but I'm going to ask it to you anyway. Why does anybody in their right mind go into parish ministry? I mean, you do. I hope you think about your ministers every once in a while, right? I mean, you you do know that it's a hard job, right? Do you know that um, roughly one out of four American ministers burns out to the point that they leave the profession every year right now? Did you know that? Do you know that more than two-thirds of American pastors don't have any close friends? I could go on all morning about this. You really have to sit there and think, have I lost my mind? I will tell you one reason, which is a very big reason why people do parish ministry. It's because Jesus changes lives and you get to see it. I've seen this. I don't just believe this. I've seen this. When I think of this darkness to light, this deep darkness to light, I think of a family early on in our years at St. Paul's in Somerville. 
They were a complete mess. Both parents came out of addiction. Both parents came out of brokenness. They had three children. They knew nothing about the gospel. I had him in my office, the husband, at one point, and he had something like 20 theological questions. Super basic. Why do we call the Old Testament old and the New Testament new? He never had any encounter with the Bible. His wife was in my wife's Bible study. They both came to Christ. Their entire family came to Christ. They were completely transformed. They became absolutely instrumental members of that community. They became different parents. They became different workers. And just as a strange footnote to the story, to my great sorrow, he he got killed in a terrible uh, hunting accident, a rifle accident, and he lost his life. And I can tell you this, if he hadn't been in our church, I don't know where he'd be in eternity, but I know where he is now. And you talk about making a difference in somebody's life. When he and his wife showed up, they didn't know Jesus from a hole in the wall, and they were completely barren of what the Bible calls real life. And when his funeral was held, you were celebrating somebody who knew what it was to live. That's different. That's night and day. That's the power of Christ in history. Do you believe in a God of transformation? And will you be willing this morning to take your darkness, whatever it is, to him? That's point number one. Point number two is there's something here about worship. And I think I want to just say it to you this way. I really, really want worship and wonder to be restored in the church. We've lost this, brothers and sisters. We don't talk about worship as wonder but the Bible does. This figure is not simply a counselor. He's a wonderful counselor. When Pascal had the experience of his life where he encountered God and it left him in awe, he he took the experience, he wrote down one word and he sewed it into his clothing. And when he died, we got it out. And it simply said a date and then it said fire. That's all it said, just fire. Because, this, I mean, one of the most brilliant people the world has ever known invented so much of philosophy and mathematics, among many other things, and he encountered Jesus, and it just, that was it. I mean, he, he had no words to say except fire. It left him stunned for days. He couldn't talk. That is the wonder. Do we have the wonder of that boy seeing a lion for the first time after reading about it? Is that the real God whom we encounter? I like the story of three families in worship. You may not know this about clergy, but we secretly covet having a hidden microphone under your lunch table after the service. Do you know that? Because that's where, that's where the real stuff gets talked about. I mean, you do know this, right? The, the honest assessment comes in the parking lot, but usually it's at the dinner table when it's safe, right? And so this is three families, and they all say grace. And the first family, the father says, after the service, he says, wasn't the choir wonderful? And then there's another family, same parish, a couple blocks down, fin- father finishes grace. Wasn't the sermon wonderful? And then we go to the last family, a little bit farther into town. And the father finishes grace, looks out at his family and says, isn't Jesus wonderful? Now, the difference between those three things is massive. Of course, we hope that the music is wonderful. We pray to God that the sermon is wonderful. But that's not why we're here. We're here to find every way possible to teach you and to get you to believe and to get you to come to grips with and to get you to be in awe of the fact that Jesus is wonderful. That's his authentic character. That's why we're here. Do you know that? Do you live that? Do you sing that? 
I debated. I actually almost sent Jonathan a note because I didn't know if it was okay to sing during a sermon. But I don't know. I don't know how much you know about this hymn. It was. It's actually from Appalachia. Uh, it's one of my absolute favorites, and it, it comes from a woman we know almost nothing about who is a very small evangelist. And the guy who got us the the actual hymn uh, heard it from this woman whose name is Annie Morgan, and he memorized it because he made her repeat it so many times, and then he wrote it down. And it goes like this. I wonder as I wander out under the sky how Jesus the Savior did come for to die for poor ordinary people like you and like I. I wonder as I wander out under the sky. That's just the first verse. The whole thing is to die for. But look at look at what she did two times in that first stanza. I wonder as I wander. That's real biblical worship. You just, God is so great, you just can't take him in. Is that your worship life? Is that the God that you know? Still not done. One more point I want to make for where we live and move and have our being. Probably the most important one. We live in a time where people are stuck and they're looking for wisdom and they're looking for life in all the wrong places. We always do. And this image of Jesus as a wonderful counselor is so, so significant. And so my question to you is this. Do you really know how much of a help your wonderful counselor is? Do you know how wonderful his counsel really is? Do you think that you can go to him for anything, in any situation, for the wisdom that you need to live your life? That's the question. I got a story for you about the wisdom of God. It comes from one of my favorite people who was a missionary to Zaire, who I got to hear in college, had the privilege of hearing. His name is Helen Rosevere, who's gone from this world to the next. And one of the reasons I love this story about the wisdom of God so much is because Helen Rosevere was an awesome missionary Christian her whole life. She's, she's the kind of person that you and I would dream about looking up to. And, to. and it's a story about how she was humbled by the wisdom of God in her own ministry. And this is the way she tells the story in her own words. Listen. One night in Central Africa, I had worked hard to help a mother in our labor ward. But in spite of all we could do, she died, leaving us with a tiny premature baby and a crying two-year-old daughter. We would have difficulty keeping the baby alive. We had no incubator. We had no electricity to run an incubator. And we had no special feeding facilities. And although we lived on the equator, nights were often chilly with treacherous drafts. A student midwife went for the box we had for such babies and for the cotton wool that the baby would be wrapped in. Another went to stoke up the fire and get a hot water bottle. She came back shortly thereafter in distress to tell me that in filling the bottle, it had burst. Rubber perishes easily in a tropical climate. And then she said to me, and I quote, it is our last water bottle. As in the West, she says, it is no good crying over spilled milk. So in Central Africa, it might be considered no good to cry over a burst water bottle. They do not grow on trees, and there are no drugstores down on forest pathways. All right, I said, put the baby as near to the fire as you can safely do it. Sleep between the baby and the door to keep it free from drafts. Your job is to keep the baby warm. The following noon, as I did most days, I went to prayer with many of the orphanage children who chose to gather with me. 
I gave the youngers, younger, younger, youngsters various suggestions of things to pray about, and then I told them about the tiny baby and the crisis that we were facing. I explained our problem about keeping the baby warm enough, mentioning the hot water bottle. The baby could die if it got chilled. I also told them about the two-year-old sister crying because her mother had died, and so they pray. And during the prayer time, one 10-year-old girl, whose name is Ruth, prayed this prayer. Please, God, send us a water bottle. It will be no good tomorrow. God, the baby will be dead. So please send it this afternoon. Rosevere, this statuesque Christian, says, I gaped inwardly at the audacity of the prayer. She wasn't done this little prayer warrior. And please, while we are about it, Lord, would you please send a dolly for the little girl so she'll know you really love her. And Rosevere talks about this story, and she says she didn't know what to do because it was such an audacious prayer. She realized she couldn't even pray it herself. She was stunned by it. Oh, yes, I know God can do everything, she said. The Bible says so. But there are limits, aren't there? I mean, how could God answer this particular prayer? I had been in Africa for almost four years at the time, and I'd never received a single parcel from home. Also, if anyone did send anything, who would put it in a hot water bottle? We lived on the equator. (laughs) Halfway through the afternoon, while I was teaching in the nurses' training school, a message was sent that there was a car at my front door. By the time I reached home... The car had gone, but there on the veranda was a large 22-pound parcel. I felt tears prickling my eyes. I could not open the parcel alone, so I sent for the orphanage children. Together, we pulled off the string, carefully undoing each knot. We folded the paper, taking care not to tear it unduly. Excitement was mounting. Some 30 or 40 pairs of eyes were focused on the large cardboard box. From the top, I lifted out brightly colored knitted jerseys. Eyes sparkled as I gave them out. Then there were knitted bandages for the leprosy patients, and the children began to look a little bored. Next came a box of mixed raisins and sultanas that would make a nice batch of buns for the weekend. And as I put my hand in again, I felt something, and I thought to myself, no way. And she brought out a hot water bottle, a brand new rubber hot water bottle. She said, I cried. I had not asked God to send it. I had not truly believed that he could. Ruth, the prayer warrior, was in the front row of the children. When she saw me with a hot water bottle, she rushed forward, crying out, and said this, If God has sent the water bottle, he must have sent the little dolly too. And rummaging down to the bottom of the box, she pulled out a small, beautifully dressed dolly. Her eyes shone. She never doubted. She looked up at me and she asked, Can I go over with you, Mommy, and give this dolly to that little girl so that she knows that Jesus really loved her? The parcel had been on its way for five months, packed up by my former Sunday school class, whose leader had heard and obeyed God's prompting to send a hot water bottle even to the equator, and one of the girls in the class had put in a dolly for an African child. Five months earlier, in answer to the believing prayer 
of a 10-year-old. That is the wisdom of God. That's what it means to have a wonderful counselor. You can't answer a prayer better than that. Out of the mouths of babes. So I give you, I give you the great Christmas passage from the Old Testament. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is wonderful. He is worthy of all of our worship. And he is the counselor for whatever we need. In Jesus' name, amen.